Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn in a beautiful, sunny, slightly cool Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in very similar conditions in South East London. Now, Richard, uh, the county championship season is underway. We've had three rounds of really fabulous, fascinating cricket, which has led us to make the decision to bring back for a second innings one of our our patron saint of this programme. Well, it is. And um, spirit, you know, we're metaphorically falling on our knees again because uh, it's a very warm welcome back to Stephen Chalk. Uh, Stephen, really in his capacity this time as author of beautiful illustrated history of uh, the county championship, Summer's Crown, which we're going to be drawing on quite extensively, I imagine. Uh, Stephen, welcome back. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Peter. Now, first of all, Stephen, these three matches have been such fun. They've been so fascinating. Tell us what you made of them. Well, first of all, I'd like to say... This streaming service that's now offered to us to sit at home and watch these matches on our computer with high-quality commentary by people who follow the counties round all summer and have all this information about the players allows me to dip into Edgebaston and Bristol and Taunton. And uh, 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 Sunday I watched a wonderful run chase, uh, Rob Yates and Sam Hain from Warwickshire beating Essex nullifying the spin bowling of Simon Harmer. And then I had time to switch over to the Aegeus Bowl to see the Gloucestershire last pair hanging on for an hour and a quarter to prevent Hampshire winning. Um, So fabulous to have this available to us. So we've got two months of county championship cricket with no distractions from international cricket. All the games starting on Thursday and ending on Sunday. It's really quite like old times with the primacy of the county championship in this early part of the summer. And uh, as you say, the weather's been good and there's been some fascinating games. Um, I've got my eye on Hampshire, actually. I think they've got a terrific bowling attack with Mohammed Abbas and Kyle Abbott and Dawson and Crane. and, um, And they've got good batting, too. So they're my tip to win at the moment which will probably doom them. <laughs> well, it's interesting. interesting that you turn to their bowling attack first, because I think, looking back over the history of the championship, over the whole season, it's the sides of the best bowling attacks that win, don't they? The sides that can bowl out their opponents twice, which Hampshire narrowly failed to do in their last match. I think that's generally true. I think it's become slightly less true since the four-day game's been created. There was a season, I think it was 2004, when Warwickshire won the championship, having won only five out of their 16 games by amassing lots of batting points. I think it was in the heyday of Ian Bell, Nick Knight, Mark Waugh. And they didn't, they had to, actually, their bowling average for the season was the worst out of all 18 counties. And they won Division One of the county championship. And I, 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 the one change that's been made this year is they've increased the number of points for a draw. I quite like that. And Joe Root's been pushing for that, saying people have lost the art of defending their wicket and saving the game. And I think that probably 
means that you can do quite well in the county championship by racking up batting points and drawing games. So maybe this season bowling teams out twice isn't quite as important as, as last season. I agree with you. The streaming is amazing. But one of the things I think is very disappointing is the newspaper coverage of the county games. I mean, one of the enormous pleasures is opening the papers, going to the sports pages and looking at the scores and seeing how Bess has got on for Yorkshire or how, seeing how many runs with a route has managed to get, get away from single figures again. In his, <laughs> and you can't, uh, you can't do that really with much ease in most of the papers. And I think their contempt basically for the county game is also a contempt for the bulk of their readers. Well, I think there's a special case this year because they're not allowing very many people into the grounds to report. Um, so that's a special case, but I think your general point is that is correct that there's been a massive diminution of the coverage of county cricket in the newspapers over the last 20 years. I mean, the Daily Telegraph, you know, the paper which of E.W. Swanson and Michael Melford, the fact that it seems not to care about the county game of county cricket, is, it also tells me they don't care about most of their readers. Yeah, well, I don't read the Telegraph. Uh, I read the Times, and the Times yeah, well, you, well, have try reading, the, try getting the county scores in the Times. You can't on the online version. I read. You just can't find them anywhere. Yes. Again, it's a contempt for their readers. They they can all convince that we we desperately want to know. You know the latest football result. Have you noticed that in the papers? It, well, yes. I mean, a fo- <laughs> I, I researched <laughs> Arthur Milton, who played one game of football for England and several games of cricket for England. Yeah. And I looked up a match report of his game of football for England in the early 1950s at Wembley. And it was one column in the Times, not even a full column. And uh, you think now if England played football at Wembley, it would be about six pages with several different people. For days in advance, post-mortems lasting into the following week. I mean, I, sports editors have a lot to answer for, I think. Well, I, I, all I can say is that I, I do think the ECB are making an effort with this streaming and, and they're paying well, yes. for a lot of it themselves. And, I, uh, and um, there's a limit to how much they can pay for things. So um, I'm, I'm slightly more optimistic because of this streaming and because of the fixture list as it is this summer. I think county cricket's got a chance to shine. And also so many lovely stories. I mean, Bess. After all he's been through, what what strength of character to bowl Yorkshire, his new county, to victory over the uh, over the last few days? I think he is a strong character. I think he had a very hard winter, and he admits that himself. Yeah. He said he was hating cricket by the end of the winter, and I think Jack Leach had problems, and they were so outpolled by the Indians during the winter, but they've come back, and you know, I thought I suppose it's one of the great tests of a cricketer that they're mentally strong enough to come back from adversity and, and one of the lovely things of course is you every every summer there's a new group of players and i love this ulsterman called carson good name for an ulsterman eh uh, who, who, who took six wickets for surrey yes leg yes. spinner yes well I agree with you. There is some great talent coming through. And I think the players still respect the four-day game. There's no question of that. They love playing in front of the big crowds of the T20. But I think most cricketers realise that you make your reputation in the long game. I wonder if the world of cricket... I mean, I'm 
I haven't come to terms with it myself yet, um, streaming at all, but it is a completely new way of um, not just watching cricket, but having a relationship with um, with your county club, isn't it? I mean, you know, it, it's a totally new way of obtaining cricket content, not just from your county club, but from if you have uh, you know a device that connects to the internet, you can really watch any kind of cricket match almost anywhere in the world, can't you now? And that's a completely new landscape of cricket, which I don't think anybody's quite worked out the implications of. Well, the viewing figures are good, I understand. And mm. the listening figures for the radio commentary, they're, they're much higher than you would expect. So I think that's a source of great hope. At some point, they've got to monetize this, though, haven't they? I mean, and I hope they do. I mean, it's, it's free content, isn't it, at the moment? Free to view. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, um, well... Money is always at the heart of the county championship. I agree with that. I think it's terrific entertainment. And, uh, you know, so, they can't give it away for free. They've got to pay the players and keep the brands. I'm, I'm very, I think they need to think about that. But I think that will be a, something in the future. We probably ought to move along and move on to Stephen's extraordinary work, Summer's Crown, which tells this glorious history of, of the county championship. It's, um, it is indeed a glorious history, Stephen, but I'm struck by the fact that it's, um, at least to me, the county championship almost has an accidental quality in terms of its evolution. I mean, there was no guarantee that this structure of um, you know, first-class cricket at the, as the summit of the game and as the passageway into international cricket, into the very top of cricket, there was absolutely no guarantee, was there, in the late Victorian period that the county championship would emerge as the dominant form of cricket, was there? It's very interesting to look at that late Victorian period because that's the era in which so many of the sports we play develop their shape. The Football League, the FA Cup, the All England Championships, the Rugby Union, Rugby League split, uh, the Golf Championship. There's so many of the tournaments that are the sort of key points of our sporting year mm. emerged in those years. And I, cricket, well, it could have gone down the road of rugby. It could have been a professional game in the north and an amateur game in the south. There was certainly an element of that split. I think the key figure in all this was the chap who was the secretary at the Oval, Charles Alcock, because he saw commercial potential in cricket and embraced the professional ethos when... All the other southern counties were very wedded to the idea of being predominantly amateur and were slightly suspicious about creating competitions. And Alcock had this extraordinary life in which he was the secretary at the Oval, staged the first test matches at the Oval, was a pioneer in the development of the county championship. And at the same time as all that, ran the FA, created the FA Cup and was a, a significant figure in the, the creation of Football internationals mm. also played initially at the Oval and as well as doing all of that, ran a cricket magazine and a football publication. A quite extraordinarily um, broad set of interests and, and he pushed Surrey down the road of being a predominantly professional club who were in the 1890s the, the, the top county, won six years out of the 10 in the 1890s. So much so that their president, who was an MP, Sir Richard Webster, soon to become Lord Orverston, 
summoned some of the cricket committee to his room at the House of Commons mm -hmm. and gave them a dressing down, said that they were playing too many professionals in the side. The professionals were fraternising too much with the amateurs Ooh, and, yeah. <laughs> and that they were winning the county championship too often. Whoa, <laughs> oh, <laughs> so that gives you some idea of the prevailing ethos of, of, of amateur sport in the south of England. Uh, where, of course, there, are there were no leagues in the south of England until, I think, 1968. Um, Richard, we need to check him out in Hansard. Very easy to do nowadays yes. with that fabulous yeah, Hansard well, archive. He may have given the old yes. speech about this, about them. I'm sure, he did. <laughs> yes. I don't know if that, that theme of fraternising with the professionals comes up quite often, doesn't it, in in series later history? Percy Fender was um, criticised for exactly the same reason, wasn't he? He thought when he was captain. Well, Percy Fender is considered to have been the best captain in county cricket in in the nineteen twenties, an innovative captain. He was a disciplinarian. He was a fine all-rounder, batsman and bowler and fielder, and had ideas as captain that went beyond the norm of the time. But he never captained England, and several people said he was by far the best captain in the country. And, and there are various views about why this was. He certainly upset one or two people on occasions with his actions, and uh, and... I think when he toured Australia in 1920-21, he was earning some money on the side by writing reports of the games, yeah. which was considered rather non-new. Um, he also was in trade, so he wasn't a proper yeah. amateur. And there's even a suggestion in some quarters, though he himself denied this, that, that people thought he was Jewish. Indeed, that might have been due to his famous caricature, wasn't it? Yes. He was, he was drawn by a great cartoonist Webster. Webster, yes. Yes, wasn't he? And yep. um, he drew him very much like Groucho Marx. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was a great play. He scored the fastest century ever in the history of first-class cricket, 35 mm. minutes still yes. to this day. Um, yes, and but, it was a real century, not a, not against, you yes. know, a, not a contrived one, but a declaration yes. one. Yep. Yes. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the relationship between professionals and amateurs, we look back now and it does seem very peculiar that the amateurs would walk out of a different changing room through a different gate onto the field of play. And, and this was surviving till the beginning of the 1960s. I remember one player telling me they were playing at Worthing, where the amateur dressing room was on the opposite side of the ground from the professional dressing room. And the professionals at the end of lunch had to stand on the boundary on their side of the room, wait for the amateur captain to appear on the other side before they took the field. <laughs> and of yep. course, the amateurs would be called Mr. Yes. Mr. Fender or whoever he was. Yes. yes, yes, they would. Yes. And they would rec they would call the uh, professionals by their only hobs or... Uh, yes. Sutcliffe or, you know, they, they, yes. they weren't, didn't get any respect in the, yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Hobbs and Sutcliffe because I would say those two, more than anybody else, raised the status of the professional cricketer in that era. Um, mm. They were men of extraordinarily good character who got beyond the image of the professional as being an uneducated, illiterate person who drank too much and raised it to a much higher level. In fact, in, in my book, I talk, uh, Yorkshire came close to appointing Herbert Sutcliffe 
as their captain in the late, late 1920s. That would have been sensational, of course. Yes. And he'd been an officer in the First World War. Yeah. And somebody mm. said if he's good enough to command men in the war, surely he's good enough to take a team of cricketers out onto the field. And an influential figure on the Yorkshire Committee was pushing this hard. And, and, and the amateurs that they were offering as an alternative to Herbert Sutcliffe were way short of any professional standard to, to play in the game. And uh, uh, one of them, Yorkshire Post, I read an article when he was appointed saying 12 or 15 years earlier, he'd scored 42 for Eton against Harrow. And he was sure. <laughs> he was <laughs> sure. <laughs> he yes, and, and that's, that's, so he, certain to storm county cricket on that the basis of that performance. Isn't uh, that was um, William Worsley, wasn't it? He, he was the father of the Duchess of Kent. Uh, was it, think, that was him. Yes, I think, I think it was, it was yes. him. I think he probably had less experience of cricket than anybody else who, mm. who, who captained the county side. In fact, Maurice Leyland, the great Yorkshire professional, said at one stage, he said, we won several county championships with a handicap of one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was like, his predecessor, I was like Major Lupton. Um, yes. Major Lupton was at least knew his sort of limitations, didn't he? Um, yes, he was quite a good, apparently he was quite a good man manager. He was, I think he was quite popular with the professionals. But I always loved the story of Major Lupton. You know, getting ready to bat, he's putting his pads on. Somebody said to him, "Don't worry, don't bother about that, Major. I think Wilfred's about to declare." Because Wilf, <laughs> Wilfred Rhodes was actually yes. making all the on-field decisions. I think the, the, the point to which this becomes very difficult is after the Second World War. Um, it's already becoming anachronistic in the 20s and 30s in the sense that there aren't enough men to captain these teams of appropriate standing. But in 1946, after six years of war, the, there aren't any hardly who've got the independent means and are of sufficient quality to come in and captain sides. And some of the people who captain county teams that summer. A lot is said about Major Nigel Bennett, who captained mm. Surrey. Various stories about this, and I'm, I'm not still not sure to this day what the truth is, but certainly Alf Gover and Jim Laker both said that the county have been trying to find Major Leo Bennett, <laughs> who'd been in the Worcestershire Regiment, and this chap, Nigel Bennett, also a major, came in one day he had played for the second eleven before the war um, and said it was not clear whether he was renewing his membership or uh, looking to play some games. But they said, oh, we've been looking for you and <laughs> appointed him as the captain. <laughs> <laughs> Glorious story. <laughs> whether it's true or not, I, I just... How long said, did he last, Stephen? Well, he did the one year. And <laughs> the story goes that Jack Parker, who was a bit of a wit in the dressing room, after four or five matches, when they soon realised he didn't have a clue what he was doing, um, Jack Parker said, I think we can cope with him for the one summer. His wife's a real cracker. (laughs) 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 Uh, And then he went down to Taunton. Somebody down in Taunton told me he joined the Taunton Club and they were all excited that they'd got the ex-Surrey captain and they soon realised he wasn't really worth a place in the Taunton first team. <laughs> but that's a bit hard on him. He did score about 600 runs in the summer in the end. The chap who did least well that summer was a, a Lancashire had a problem getting a captain and uh, the captain they'd chosen died in a car crash just before the start of the season. And they got this chap, Jack Fallows, to captain and his whole contribution in the summer of cricket was about 150 runs. Yeah. What number did he bat? Uh, well, he'd go in seven or eight, I should think, you know, and certainly not very high in the order. And But he didn't bowl. 
but Jeff Edrick, who played in that team, said everybody liked him. We told him what to do and he was responsive. And, you know, the season was a very happy one. We did well and they finished third. And it actually worked out better than Nigel Bennett's year as captain. Um, it worked, worked out better than Cyril Washbrook's captaincy as professional, didn't it? Cyril Washbrook was very... Um... He was a very stern captain, and who rubbed up a lot of players very, very badly, didn't he? And actually, you know, lost a lot of players for Lancashire, didn't he? Well, there were two or three things about Cyril Washbrook. Geoffrey Howard, who I did a book with, who was the secretary at the time, had a lovely line about him. He said, Cyril was the sort of man you couldn't ever imagine him having been a boy. <laughs> and uh, Doug Insall said he was, after E.W. Swanton, the biggest snob in cricket, um, <laughs> And he was a grammar school boy who was very proud of being a Lancashire professional who became the captain. I think he wasn't good with young people. He was a very defensive captain. In those days, in the 28-game, three-day, two matches a week county championship, the trick was to win lots of games. You could lose the odd one along the way. But uh, Washbrook played for a draw far too often and didn't go out for the wins. And um, so in those respects, um, he also, at that time, the county was moving towards a policy of trying to emulate Yorkshire and picking a wholly Lancashire team. And I looked through the minute books at Old Trafford in those years, and um, they turned down Bill Alley, who was playing in the leagues at the time. Mm. They turned down Ted Dexter. Mm. They turned down John Edrich, who his cousin Jeff had recommended. They turned down Basil Dolivier a little bit later. Um, Actually, I got. I want to get something off my chest here, and they Frank turned down Frank Tyson, didn't they? I think. Uh, it, and, yes, but I yes. want to get something off my chest because it's Basil Dolivier, as we know. He 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 came to England in 1960, played for Middleton in the Lancashire leagues, and he absolutely he one thing he really said he was heart on was playing for Lancashire. And uh, Washbrook turned up as as the co as a talent spotter for Mole Trafford. He took he spent the afternoon and he dismissed Oliveira as a Saturday afternoon slogger. And Lancashire turned him down. Now that that I I still feel that pain actually on behalf of Basil Oliveira, and, and so he had to look elsewhere. And he thought he went to Tom Graveney himself, yes. of course, a victim of the. Uh, the professional amateur thing when he was at Gloucestershire. I'd be quite interested in what you say about that. But, you know, it took, encouraged him, glorious man, and he took him to Worcestershire. Yes. Well, I think Washbrook may have had a hand in Clive Lloyd not becoming captain of Lancashire when it would have been the right time for him to do it. He did it much later. Uh, I think he was very wedded to the idea of Lancashire for Lancastrians, really. Take that as you will. Sonny Ramadan had, I think, one un rather unhappy season at Lancashire, didn't he? In, in, um, really yeah. He took quite a lot of wickets, though. Yeah. I, I, and actually, that was another factor in Dolivera not going, because there was already Ramadan in the team, I think. So, I'd like to look back a little bit on the whole question of amateurs in, in county cricket, because for lots of the weaker counties, they, they were in... It wasn't just a matter of social prestige, it was a matter of financial necessity, wasn't it? I mean, most, I don't think any county made a profit out of cricket alone, didn't it? Let alone um, the weaker ones couldn't afford to employ many professionals. They actually depended on people. They depended on amateurs, didn't they? You might think that, but I remember reading an article in the Times in the early part of the 20th century in which 
they actually were arguing that amateurs cost more money than professionals oh, because of their expenses. W.G. Grace notoriously cost far more than any, than any yeah. professional ever did. I think Middlesex asking somebody if he wanted to play as a professional or an amateur, and he said, whichever pays more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's actually that's a very good point. And, of course, Jim, Jim Laker asked if he could turn amateur before the 1958-59 tour of Australia, didn't he? Because it was, yes. it was worth more it was worth more to him. Yeah. Well, Trevor Bailey was making a lot of money on that tour with various enterprises he had on the go. He was supposed to be an amateur as well. Uh, the whole thing had fallen into disrepute by then. Well, what they used to do, wasn't it, with Bailey, for instance, he was uh, assistant club secretary at Essex, so they... Found a back but he door. was the secretary. He was real thing, oh, he was it? secretary. So they give yeah. him a job as secretary. At, yes. And they can, and so that's how they get away with being yeah. an amateur. Yes. Like what Kadar was offered uh, uh, the secretaryship of Warwickshire yes. when he left university to keep him on as a, 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 a keep him in Britain, uh, but he didn't take it. Went back to Pakistan. Yes. I think going back to the other half of the point, we've probably said enough about amateurs and professionals because it's only one strand of the county championship. I think the fundamental point you make is that um, county championship has been financially unviable through most of its history. It's had brief periods, notably after each of the world wars when crowds flooded in and also back in the 1890s when it built up so much. It's hard to imagine now, but in the 1880s, 1890s, the county game attracted a lot more attention than the international matches. A crowd at the Oval for Surrey against Nottinghamshire would be larger, much larger than England against Australia. The county mm. game in that era around 1890 had really caught the national imagination. And that led to a massive expansion in the number of counties coming into the competition and it got very out of hand very quickly so in 1890 you've got eight teams and by 1899 you've got 15 mm. and by the time you're up to 13 14 15 counties are playing different numbers of matches and and the whole thing's becoming rather unclear as to how you structure the competition endlessly changing the system for who gets most points and wins the championship and by i saw an editorial in about 1905-1906 in the Times, in which they were saying that um, there were far too many counties, far too few people watching the cricket, far too little money, and um, the whole thing had needed cutting back. And by 1914, Gloucestershire and Worcestershire were set to pull out, and mm -hmm. only the war saved them. The war was actually good for them because members kept playing, paying their subscriptions and they had no outgoings. And the thing built up again. But by 1937, there was an MCC review of county cricket and there were only three counties who were said to be solvent. And Surrey in the 1950s won seven championships in a row. And Geoffrey Howard, who I did a book with, left Surrey in 1948 to become secretary at Lancashire, came back as the secretary at Surrey in 1965. And he said no money had been spent on the ground in those 17 years. Hmm. The place looked worse than it did in 1948. Uh, part of the problem was that some of the counties, I mean, the whole thing has depended on windfalls from one source or another. So Derbyshire went every year to the Duke of Devonshire at Chatsworth House and got a, a, a fee from him and other benefactors around the country put money in. 
And in the 1950s, the, the more imaginative forward-looking counties, particularly in the Midlands, created these football pools. And Warwickshire had a fantastically successful football pool, raising hundreds of thousands of pounds a year, which allowed them to redevelop the Edgbaston ground, become a test-playing arena again. And, and at the end of the 60s, they had enough money to lend Essex the money uh, to buy a ground, because Essex at that stage didn't have a ground. Mm-hmm. And But car- counties like Surrey and Yorkshire and Lancashire it would have been beneath them to have run a football pool scheme. Uh, they, uh, as a story Geoffrey Howard told, which has, says everything to me, he went back to the Oval in 1965. As I say, it was in a bad shape. And they had a clock at the, at the Vauxhall end, which wasn't working. And the clock was the clock the umpires were using. <laughs> and, and they needed to replace it. And on the committee was a man from Guinness. And he said, Guinness will pay for that clock for you. It'll, we put it up and it'll have its Guinness time written on it, which was their logo at the time. And um, the committee turned it down because it was advertising and they didn't want advertising on the ground. That's 1965 at Surrey. Can I raise one other map before we go back again to the starting of the county season? It's so interesting that it was based on a rural concept of, of, of England, you know, or the counties at a moment, of course, when you had the great Victorian industrialization and urbanization of the country. And so it, it's, it's, it's um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's rather odd or at the moment it starts. It's not representative Yes, I'm, I'm not quite sure how that... I, I, I mean, the earliest county is, with a continuous existence is Sussex. And they go back... What day do they go back to? The 1820s, 1830s? I'll look it up. Um, Sussex were founded in 1839. Mm. And obviously the, the Kent, Sussex, Hampshire have been the cradle of cricket. And Yorkshire and Lancashire are not founded till the early 1860s. So there's a bit of a pattern of cricket already developed. It's very haphazard the way these counties are formed. I mean, the first Warwickshire County Club is not based in Birmingham at all. It doesn't draw on Birmingham players. It's uh, Stratford-on-Avon, Leamington, and mm. uh, uh, Warwick and places like that, mm. leafy country towns. And that doesn't get anywhere. And, and it's only when a chap comes in a bit later and bases it in with a much more strong input from Birmingham that it gets going again. Uh, but the, by that stage, the pattern is county clubs. And, and they're all... And Yorkshire was initially a Sheffield-based club, uh, almost entirely drawing its strength and, from the Sheffield area and only becomes the dominant county when it diversifies out into the whole county. Yes, I mean, Lancashire, Lancashire started off wanting to be all around the county, but very quickly settled at Old Trafford. It, yes, it is. It, 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 there's a lot of accident in it. And that's why, that's why the 100 is very interesting, because it's mm. a, it is an attempt, actually, to reconceptualise the way that cricket is organised and turn it into um, a, a sport which reflects, as football does, the urban nature of British, uh, the mass of British life. One of the other things which comes, which amazed me really when I'm reading your wonderful book, actually, uh, Stephen, 
In fact, most summers for a long, long time, the county championship was all there was. There weren't visiting tourists very often. Well, that's right. Uh, the Australians came every four years. The South Africans came occasionally just after the whatever the first date that was in the 20th century. And then you're right into something like 1927 when the West Indies come over. Um, and even as late as I think 32, the Indians come over and just play one test match. And the test matches going back into the early part of the 20th century, only three day games anyway. So they don't slice that much into the county programme. Players finish their county matches on Friday evening and they're playing in a test match on Saturday morning. And, and the county programme, as you say, in quite a few summers is all there is. I, I read a reference to the summer of 1921 when the Australians came over and beat us very badly and the England selectors were changing the team every game as a reference to a player at the last minute having to make their way from a game in the south of England to one of the northern cities to play test cricket the next day who's wandering around late at night looking for a bed for somewhere <laughs> to stay. <laughs> this is the preparation to play in a test match. So it's, they just, they're... They're workhorses. They're, 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 they're playing six days a week. You run forward to the, there's a year in the early 60s when Derek Shackleton, a medium-paced bowler for Hampshire, bowling off quite a long run-up, played 34 matches in 17 and a half weeks. He was given, I think, the game against Oxford University off. Otherwise, he played six days a week every week for 17 and a half weeks and, and in that time he played he bowled over 1700 overs as a hundred overs a week he was bowling uh, throughout that summer he'd have played some benefit matches as well and he would have been driving all around the country from one place some of the journeys that the sec the fixtures sent them on you know they'd finished one evening in uh, Dover and they'd be playing the next day at Nottingham or uh, Tom Cartwright told me about a game they they finished in Dover and were playing the next morning at uh, Middlesbrough and and you know they're arriving sometimes well into the small hours of the morning often in very hot weather and and you know it's a it's a course that requires stamina and the emphasis is on, you know, keeping going through that. And it's a different setup from what they've got now, where the players are better looked after and have more breaks between games and more time to practice. No time to practice in those days. Players told me in the 60s that, you know, it was, the coach didn't go around with the first team. Uh, the coach would be working with the youngsters in the second team. So if somebody's batting was... You know, they were falling over while they were batting. Um, it would be an umpire or somebody else who would point this out to them. Uh, I think sometimes it'd be somebody on the opposition that would say, you realise you're falling over when you're bowling. And, uh, you know, it was it was nothing like as professional as it is now. The, the, the job was to take the game around the country, around all these grounds, outgrounds as well as main grounds, and, 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 and desperately trying to find an audience for it all. Which was fading away by the 50s, wasn't it? Um, yes, it was. Yes, way. it was. It's amazing what you're saying, though. So Shackleton, at 6.30, he, he kicks off his cricket boots, goes, has a, has a shower at the ground. He, having bowled 40, 30 overs in the second innings, that, uh, and then he gets into a car 
does he? And drives from Dover to, as you say, to Nottingham, takes three, hour, three and a half hours. You'll get there around midnight, kind of checks into a bed. He's up at nine. Yeah, Opens to bowling, game. 20 more overs. Yes. You're making it very <laughs> gruelling, aren't you? <laughs> well, Shaq in particular, he, he, he didn't drive at more than about 45 miles an hour even on an open road yeah. <laughs> so he probably wouldn't have done over to nottingham in three and a half hours they must have they must have had a few car accidents as well oh there were some terrible ones in the 1930s yes players who were killed four or five cricketers were killed in the 1930s on the roads yeah. uh, the level of road accidents was far higher in the 1930s Yes, it's still still very high in the nineteen fifties. Um, yes, uh, it's it's it, it's greatly reduced now. No, no motorways in the nineteen fifties, and they made these big journeys. So, yeah, no, no, that's no, right. No, no, no easy passage. Yeah, and you know, just staying with that for a moment. I mean, mm. as a bowler, you you know, getting sitting in a seat in a car for several hours, driving or even as a passenger, it, it, it's not the ideal way of resting the body after a day's bowling, no. is it? No. Your lovely books on the fifties and sixties say no fitness training, none of it, none of um, very little medical attention. If they had any um, any problem, you know, if they had a serious problem, um, and um, yeah, as well as uh, what comes over in your lovely books is um, not just the, the the you know the playing conditions were hard enough, but you had to do your bit in the bar afterwards. You had you were expected to have a very active social life afterwards, weren't you? Well, I think the position of women was different. I mean, uh, mm. men didn't go home to their wives in the same way. They weren't present when their children were born. And, and, and it's a different way of life. And yes, the players stayed in the bar. And a lot of them said to me they learned more about the game from talking to their fellow players in the bar than, than anywhere else. In your two books, they, all the players you spoke to seem to have really loved their time in 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 county cricket in the fifties and sixties. Um, as we say, they're working extraordinarily hard. Uh, they have very very few um, rights as working people, have they? In the sense that uh, the counties had very very county committees had sort of really complete control over their lives. And I love the stories that you tell of um, the players who were, whose contracts are being renewed and used to get help, a bit of help from the, the umpires, because the umpires are very much part of the fraternity of county cricket. And, and I love the stories of, you know, them saying, well, he, you know, he needs a few wickets, his contract is up. So they'd get the umpires give them a few well, friendly uh, LBWs. Yeah. Not too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was very futile. And um, hmm. yes, they had to know their place. But I suppose if you put it in, in social context, a lot of the cricketers of that era, the alternative for them would have been less attractive. They'd have been working in a factory or on a farm field or down a mine. And the idea of spending four months of the summer out in sunlit fields oh. playing the lovely game of cricket. And, um, you know, they all said, you know, it, it was hard at times, but, you know, I'd have done it for nothing if I could have afforded it. Uh, I think oh. the people who perhaps weren't so enamoured of it were perhaps some of the university types who then came down to play county cricket and uh, I remember one telling me that he went from Oxford University to the um, Gloucestershire dressing room and said it was like moving from a sunlit conservatory to a, um, a factory floor <laughs> mm. <laughs> and somebody was peeing in the basin and you know the whole atmosphere oh. of it was uh, very very different. 
We did. We didn't get that impression from Peter Gibbs. Peter PJK Gibbs, as you'll remember him in the sixties. Yes, uh, was yes. at Oxford University. Came up with that marvelous phrase. He was starting reading PPE, and he said, "I was facing Strawson at nine a.m. and Fred Truman at the parks at eleven thirty. Caden Strawson, yeah. Britain's greatest philosopher. I mean, it was at the time. I mean, it, and I thought he he didn't give us that impression, did he, Richard? A lovely, a fascinating conversation he was. Yep. Mm. And he obviously loved playing for Derbyshire. Yeah. Found it really testing, um, and he wasn't at all rude about his fellow players. They wrote a very good novel about them. Yes, talk to yes. Talk to I'm not about. saying that's true of all of them, but I, I have met some who thought this, is, you know, I've got better things to do with my life because they had the alternative, mm-hmm. whereas most of the pros didn't have a better alternative. One or two of the amateurs, and you've mentioned them in your book, um, sort of picked their matches, didn't they? You know, um, Gamini Guinness Gunasina said, I'm not going to Derbyshire again. Oh, oh, no, it was um, Ilkeston. Ilkeston. <laughs> I don't oh, think okay. I'll play at Ilkeston again. Yes, that's right. He played for Knotts. Uh, that was a nice story because I was told because he was an upper class Sri Lankan playing in the same team as Reg Simpson, who was uh, an ex-policeman who was playing as an amateur because he was had a good job with Gunn and Moore. And Reg Simpson was not of the amateur class, really, uh, but he got a job which allowed him to play as an amateur. And apparently one day in the car, when the two of them arrived together, there was a very frosty atmosphere because Gamini Kunasina, who had a cut glass accent, had said to Reg Simpson, let's face it, Reg, I'm the only proper amateur in this team. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> thing being, to say to your being captain. Being a man of colour <laughs> from Sri Lanka, that didn't go down very well with Reg. <laughs> <laughs> No, we we could spend so long on county cricket in this era, um, Stephen. But I think we ought to move on past past nineteen sixty two, which is often seen as a watershed year. It's the formal abolition of amateur status, amateur influence. Might we might say goes goes on a bit longer, but sixties um, see an absolute explosion of innovation in the in the county game, don't don't they? And from which it's really never looked back. Well. Everybody says cricket's the most conservative game. But if you look at county cricket in the 1960s, cricket is the first game in this country, other than table tennis, to abolish the distinction between amateur and professional. It's the first game of all to take on the Lord's Day Observance Society and start playing on Sundays. It creates this whole new form of the game, the one-day cricket. It starts pioneering sponsorship and it brings in this whole group of overseas players who don't have to conform to residential qualifications. Mm. So there's a whole series of changes taking place which are really quite pioneering. The game's in a complete crisis. The audiences have fallen away. There's no money in the game and they're trying desperately to revive the thing. And, 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 And that was the structure that carried forward in some ways when you look at the 1970s and you look at the quality of the overseas players playing all summer every summer in our county game returning year after year to the same sides Mike Proctor at Gloucestershire Barry Richards at Hampshire Clive Lloyd at Lancashire Viv Richards at Somerset and so on you've got many of the top players in the world as well as the England cricket test cricketers playing regularly in the England county game and now, 
because there's so much more international cricket all around the year, because international cricketers are much better paid than they used to be and therefore don't need to play the county cricket to the same extent. And because England cricketers have central contracts and don't play very much county cricket, you can't say that the standard of the county game is anywhere near as good now as it was in the 1970s. Uh, if you're going out facing Mike Proctor and Imran Khan and Malcolm Marshall and these Joel Garner, these bowlers week after week in the county game and you're doing well, that must be a smaller step up from that to playing test cricket than it would be now when the equivalent of those people play very little county cricket. That's very true. In a way, I'm just... Um... David Steele is might be an example of that. David David Steele was, you know, so to say, picked out of out of nowhere. It's a surprise choice for everybody. But he'd been playing. He'd made his reputation in county cricket. You know, facing extremely high quality bowling. Um, yes. Day in, day in, day out, day out, and he succeeded. You know, against the two fastest attacks in the world. Really, with no other training but county cricket. Well, Tony Gregg was the England captain. He was rather keen on bringing back these old players, wasn't he? Mm. He brought back Brian Close and John Edridge famously <laughs> against the West Indies in 76. And um, so, yes, that would be... Actually, the player, when I was researching my book, the player who came into county cricket at the age of 35 on the back of having done extremely well in our English county game and said that he owed his place in the test team to the experience he'd got playing in county cricket and what a good standard of cricket it was, was the Australian Chris Rogers. Mm, that's true, yes. And he had, a, he had, a, he had a, a brilliant series. He did very well in this cricket. And, and interestingly, at that time, if I, I, I'm trying to remember who the England manager, manager was, but at that time he wouldn't have got into the England team because there was not the attention being played to performance in county cricket. Uh, and one of the functions of county cricket is to prepare people for test cricket. Now, I think you've got Chris Silverwood and Ashley Giles in charge of the England team now, both of whom have got strong roots in the English county game, and I think will be much more respectful of achievement in county cricket than certainly Duncan Fletcher was, and probably Andy Flower was. Um, and, and, and I think... That's healthy because you do want those progressions. You want people playing in the county game to feel that if they score runs, they will get given a chance at test level. Yeah. Dom Sibler might be another you know, modern, modern example. Very um, good example. Very yeah. good example indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah, he, learns, he learns to play long innings in the county game and he's valued for it. Yes. I, I don't know if you noticed in this last round of matches that an all-time county championship record was created the young Lancashire batsman, Hamid, mm. who played three times for England in the Indian subcontinent two or three years ago and was a rising star and then went very far backwards at Lancashire. He's moved to Nottinghamshire and in the four-day game that's just taken place, he scored two centuries in the match, playing test match batting and staying in and building an inning slowly and mm. carefully as he does. And in the course of the match, he faced more balls as a batsman than anybody else in the history of the county championship. Really? Richard and I found, as historians of 
Pakistan cricket was, of course, that the county championship taught so many of the great Pakistan players, which went on to dominate the win the World Cup. Imran Khan, Sadiq, Mohammed, so many, uh, Yunus, so many others, how to play the game in, at the top level. It was a fantastic grinding. Yes, and I think you can say the same thing about the West Indians. I think their fast bowlers would have been great bowlers anyway, but the English, the batsmen, I think it's a real learning curve to come to England to play in English conditions. And in those years, on a whole range of surfaces, I think in more recently, the loams have become more standardised at county grounds. There's much less use of outgrounds. But back in the 70s, 80s, county cricketers had to adapt to all these different surfaces around the country. And it tightened up the batting skills of those top West Indian batsmen mm. who became so dominant in world cricket. Uh, uh, and I think so not only was it good in producing England cricketers, as you say, Pakistan, West Indies, not so much the Australians, they didn't seem to come so much, but several other countries used English county cricket as a great training ground for stepping up into test cricket. So as we got to move forward rather quickly chronologically, what sort of influence do you think the Packer Revolution had on the county game? Um, did it uplift, as many people say, did it uplift players' wages and conditions? Or was that really only for the, you know, for the stars? Well, initially for the stars. And I, I think in it probably was the start of the era in which the top overseas players didn't need to play county cricket as much as they had been doing. Uh, but yes, the remuneration of players has increased greatly since those years. Uh, the big change, I think, has been the shift from a game controlled by counties, which were member-based clubs, to a game controlled from the centre by the TCCB and then the ECB, uh, drawing most of its revenue from television monies and sponsorship and dictating more to the counties how the game should be played at county level. So uh, that's the big power shift that's taken place in in the last 20, 30 years. That's why you've got central contracts. That's why you've got the 100. And, and the money, the counties are paid all that money to agree to the 100 when, for many of the counties, uh, they're not involved in it. All kinds of different ways, of course, that influence was pushed. I remember Giles Clark telling me when he was chairman of the ECB, he rang up Kent and so, because he wanted to promote black cricketers in English cricket, and the, some of the counties were rejecting that, and he he said, "Look, uh, you're going to play Belgrammond. You haven't put him in the team. You're going to play him." And of course, he's now captain of Kent. Good for Giles. He he made those somewhat stick in the mud committees uh, move with the times and give opportunities which they weren't getting to. Which is a great theme which we try to follow every week. One quick point on Charles is that I think his power base was actually the smaller counties. Yes. He, he was looking after the. That's why he got voted back into office. He was determined to look after the lesser counties. And that, I think, perhaps he was succeeded by. Um, he was yes, a rather boorish Yorkshireman, I seem to remember. Um, the cost-cutter man from Yorkshire. Oh, my God, I That's immortalised him, the cost-cutter man from Yorkshire. <laughs> and he probably had his, his roots. I've done a tremendous amount of good for cricket in Yorkshire, but his perspective was much more one of the big counties. 
Now, before you go, and I cannot tell you what a wonderful conversation this has been, please talk about the late Duke of Edinburgh and his role in county cricket, because it was quite profound. Yes. Well, he was the president of the Lord's Taverners, and we've talked a little about the early days of the county championship. And one of the problems of the county championship uh, is that um, they keep changing the date at which it started. And at one stage, it was considered to have started in, 19, in 1873, which meant that there was a centenary in 1973. Uh, and it was in the centenary that they introduced the arrangement where the winning county goes to Buckingham Palace at the end of the summer and receives the trophy from the Duke of Edinburgh. And it's the Lord's Taverners County Championship trophy in that sense. And um, there was one year, a fascinating saga at the end of the season. Worcestershire were playing at New Road against Glamorgan with the County Championship at stake. And it looked like they were going to finish one point ahead of Kent in the table. And Kent were very embittered because they'd been deprived of a batting point in a game against Warwickshire when two of the Warwickshire team had been absent injured. So they hadn't taken all 10 wickets and they missed out on a, a, a bowling point. So they were one point behind Worcestershire and they'd appealed to Lord saying they thought they were entitled as Warwickshire were all out to the bowling point. So there was quite a lot of grievance. And at the end of the second day of the game at New Road, overnight, a Kent supporter got onto the pitch and spilt motor oil all over the length at one end in order to prevent Worcestershire finishing the match so that Kent could win their match and become county champions. And the groundsman got up and full marks to him. They've got every blow heater and dryer in the city of Worcester and spent as much time as they could. Glamorgan, the opponents, were absolutely committed to playing and eventually Worcestershire won the county championship by one point from Kent. <laughs> and then they went to collect the trophy from the Duke of Edinburgh at um, Buckingham Palace. And when they got there, somebody realised that nobody had picked the trophy up from Trent Bridge, who where Nottinghamshire had won it the previous year. So there was a sudden panic <laughs> and they sent off to get some kind of trophy to present <laughs> on the day. And on, in a year in which county cricket had triumphed over a large patch of motor oil, Prince Philip presented to Worcestershire the Lord's Taverners Brands Hatch Motor Racing Trophy. <laughs> <laughs> he also, that was, of course, the Duke also introduced prize money for the winners, didn't he? With the... That was the same year, whether that was the Duke's influence, but that was the first year. There was prize money. The Victorians would have absolutely hated that, the idea they were playing for money. But yes, prize money came in in the same year, 1973. By the way, I've received an email from our, another of our tremendous guests, Charles Lysert in Ireland. And he, I want to launch an appeal. Charles says he has a distinct memory of seeing Pathé Newsreel in the 1950s of the Duke of Edinburgh batting. Now, we haven't seen this, and I'm launching an appeal now. Has anybody know, has anybody else seen this newsreel? And if so, can we get hold of it so that we can see exactly what sort of a batsman uh, the Duke of Edinburgh was? 
he certainly played in he played at badminton in those duke of beaufort matches sometimes and um, he played charity games here and there you're quite right did you ever see him Stephen? no no so we want to know what the what his forward defense and his cover drive was like pathé has the answer hopefully we hope so i think there's film of him I think there's film of him bowling, and I think that was some of it was shown in his. There is film of him bowling in his in his obsequies, and he's a pretty he was a pretty handy off spinner. Pretty well, um, I probably have a slightly less flattering tale to tell of a, a game at badminton where he was batting, which George Emmett's daughter, George Emmett, the old captain of Gloucestershire, was playing in the game, and George's daughter told me that Prince Philip hit a ball for four, and everybody said great shot, sir, and uh, George Emmett apparently said. Great shot, my foot is a bloody cow shot. <laughs> Stephen, it's been wonderful talking to you as uh, as always, and um, so much more we could have uh, said, and we may ask you back to say it. Thank you very much. And before we go, Richard and I have a an announcement. Uh, yes, a sad announcement, but uh, only temporarily sad. We're going off the air for three weeks. And we'll be back uh, at the very start or very end of May or very start of June. We will. We look forward to that. Meanwhile, it's goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in South East London. And goodbye from me, Peter Oborn, in a sunny Wiltshire. <laughs>